Oh, Father, all glory be to Christ our King. We look forward to the day where we will sing forever His rule and reign in His presence. Father, as we come now to open Your Word and to have our minds renewed and our lives transformed, I pray for a humility in us. I pray Your Spirit would move mightily. pray that You would do what You have promised to do, and that is sanctify us and by Your truth. And Your Word is the truth. Father, I pray that as Christ is exalted, as we consider who He is, that You would be kind to save someone even this day for Your glory. For Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. It was a, a wonderful day of ministry took place here yesterday. And... Um, there's a bunch of things, and God used a lot of people and efforts, and I'm very thankful for it, and I'm hopeful that all who are here will will apply what was what we learned and and that uh, we would we would have our marriages matter in the way they matter to God. Um, I was reading something written by one of our members this week. And it's very timely for all of us and for another particular current member of our church. The Bible Bible clearly teaches it is God who keeps His people until glory. God keeps us. The Spirit lives in us. Christ intercedes for us and God keeps us. We are saved by no efforts of our own. We are kept by no efforts of our own. It is God who keeps us. The triune God is the assurance of our salvation. It is also true that God keeps us by means, by His Word, and by His people. God keeps us. God uses means. He uses the local assembly to care for the needs of people, of God's people. He uses the means of the local assembly to proclaim the gospel. He uses means to feed and disciple His people through His people. So He keeps His people. One of the means He uses is the local assembly to keep His people from falling away into apostasy. Hebrews chapter 3. Remember, Hebrews is written to a a group of Jewish Christians that are tempted because things are difficult. Things are difficult for them, and they're tempted to go back to their old ways, to their old religion. They're, They're tempted to forget the words of God and go back to something different. Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. This is possible to fall away from the living God. No, not for a true Christian, but certainly for a nominal Christian, someone who names the name of Christ. We see that in the, in the parable of the soils, don't we? We see that in the wheat and the tares. The, 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 the praise God reality and the difficult thing for us sometimes is people actually fall away. And we're being warned, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. But exhort one another. So rather than let people have an un, evil, unbelieving heart falling away from the living God, exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is how you are to protect each other from falling away. You are to exhort one another that there not be an unbelieving heart that has one fall away. There are a number of Christians in this room today. And as far as I can tell, true believers in Jesus Christ, born again, the elect, being kept. But what we've come to understand is we watch people fall away and we're being told, don't let that happen as far as you're concerned. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Listen, as you hear God's voice, as you hear truth, as you hear the word, don't rebel against it. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by, led by Moses? And with whom he was, he prov- was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that if we're unable to enter because of unbelief. Anyone amongst us who is hearing the word of God and rebelling it needs to be, against it needs to be exhorted and called back to obedience so that they don't fall away. That's our job. That's our calling. That's our great joy. Isn't that what you would want for yourself? Or is it? We are to watch over our brothers. We are not to be like Cain and say, what am I, my brother's keeper? We are to watch out that the brethren don't backslide and fall away. We're to do that. We are to make sure that people don't fall into a settled position of rebellion and perish. That's not just the job of the elders. 
It's our job. We should not just care about our own salvation, our own obedience. We certainly should. But we're to care about one another's. We also must be warned not to be the person who's unwilling to listen. Don't be the one who's unwilling to hear the word of God and respond. When when someone, I don't care who it is, when the when the brethren or the elders bring the word of God into our lives, we are to receive the word and respond to it. We will Charles Spurgeon writes, I have known people of this kind that if a word is spoken to them, however gently, as to a wrong which they are doing, their temper is up in a moment. Who are they they should be spoken to that way? Dear friend, who are you that you should not be spoken to that way? Are you such an Offcast and such an outcast that your Christian brethren must give up? Surely you do not want to bear that character. I've even known persons take offense because the word was been spoken from the pulpit too pointedly. This is to take offense or we ought to show gratitude. Oh, says one, I will never hear that man again. He is too personal. What kind of man would you like to hear? Will you give your ear to one who will please you to your ruin and flatter you to your destruction? Surely you are not so foolish. Do you choose the kind of doctor who never tells you the truth about your bodily health? Do you trust one who falsely assured you there was nothing the matter with you when all the while a terrible disease was folding its cruel arms about you? Is that the kind of doctor you would want? That would tell you you're fine when you're dying? Was that the kind of person you'd want as a brother or sister that would not speak to you even though you're sinning? Be foolish, wouldn't it? So we are to exhort and be exhorted. I realize this is unpopular conversation. I realize this, this, this doesn't go well for some people, people that aren't here especially. But this is what God has clearly told us. He has told us, Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort and be exhorted. You are your brother's keeper in a sense. You are the means by which God cares. Look, we are happy. Praise God, we ought to be. We are happy to be cared for. Our physical needs to be cared for by the brethren. We're happy when the brethren help us and help us with children or or help us with some project. Or we're happy when the brethren talk to us about a theological matter that we can all grow in our understanding. We're all happy to have the brethren come around us to encourage us. and 
But when the brethren come to you and show you sin in your life, don't harden your heart. Don't avoid those discussions. Don't be the one who leaves and don't be here when the next one leaves. As far as you're concerned. And then we've done all we can. We can sleep on the sovereignty of the pillow of God. And we can do that anyway. But but people ought not fall away without us holding on. And leaving it to somebody else to do. It is true, I would say, based on the scriptures, that especially it is the job of elders and the more mature Christians, but elders to do this function. But don't think for a second this isn't for all of us to do. And there may be repentance that we need to be having. in how we've received or are willing to receive reproof and rebuke and correction or how we've been willing or unwilling to give that. And I don't think it's a good excuse to say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know that brother or sister was so upset. I didn't know that brother or sister was so close to leaving. The man who's, what I read this week, this man was ready to leave here. He's not gone. And he understands that it's God's people that kept him. People will leave. The scriptures are clear. But as far as we're concerned, not on our watch. Father, help us. Humble us, Father. Help us to be a people who hear your word and by your grace we obey it. And when we don't, Father, that we repent and we change. Father, help us to be a people who are unwilling to have those we call brothers and sisters fall away because of evil, unbelieving hearts. Help us, Father. Amen. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 will be in verses 18 through 20 today. As you open your Bibles, I I want you to know that the question that Jesus asks of the 12 in this passage is the most important question you will ever be asked. I I actually want you to just take a moment now as it pertains, who do you say Jesus is? Everyone in here, listen. Don't be distracted right now. 
Don't be distracted right now. Front row, don't be distracted right now. Sophia Grace, don't be distracted right now. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? There is no more important question that you will ever consider. It is the question, you'll have a pass or a fail. It's the only exam that matters, ultimately, is when you stand before God with a pass or a fail. There's no A, B, C's, D's. There's pass and there's fail. And it matters how you answer this question. When we evangelize, this is actually the only question we need to ask. Myriad of ways to get there, but the only question that needs to be asked, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? Please stand and I will read Luke chapter 9 verses 18 through 20. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist? But others say Elijah. And others, the, the, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. You may be seated. In the Gospel of Luke, we're coming to the, we've talked about this, we're coming to the end of of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's near the time where he'll he'll set his face towards Jerusalem. This ministry that's taking place, the most recent uh, feeding of the 20,000 plus was up in Bethsaida, remember? It's in Israel, but it's it's in Philip, the Tetrarch's area, so it's no longer in Galilee. He's just fed them and In John's gospel, we see, we'll talk about a little bit more, but a a judgment on them for what they're after him for. And he's kind of concluding his his ministry there. And in Luke's accounting, he goes from feeding the the 20,000 plus to this who do you say that I am event. And it begins with these words, now it happened in verse 18. Now it happened. Now it happened actually takes in quite a bit of time. A few weeks or month, a couple of months. A lot of things that take place between uh, chapter 9 um, and they all were satisfied with leftover and what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened. In there there's quite a bit of things that took place that Luke doesn't write about. In Matthew, Mark and John's Gospels. After this, Jesus walks on water. Peter tries to walk on water. Uh, the day, the next day, he, he preaches the the bread of life sermon to them as they chase after him because they want more, more bread, and and that that happens. And um, there's a there's a healing of the the Syrophoenician's daughter. There's the healing of a deaf mute. There's the feeding of four thousand in Decapolis, which again is outside of Israel. There's the opening of a blind man's eyes. All of these events were left out by Luke. Why? 
because the Spirit of God guided him to leave those things out. More practically, possibly, he wanted to tie Herod's question of who is this man more closely to Peter's answer. So there's more things that happen, but Luke doesn't talk about them. But Another thing Luke's gospel leaves out is, is where the, the, this happens, what the location is. In Matthew's gospel, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. So Caesarea Philippi was in the northernmost part of Israel. Again, it was in Philip's territory. He named it Caesarea after the Caesar, Philippi. Philip, it was way in the northern, up by Dan. It was almost out of Israel. So it was farther away. It was a place that Jesus could go farther away with his 12 as he's really going to start focusing on them now, as we'll see. He really starts focusing on them as he's going to Jerusalem. More time spent with them. And so they go up to Caesarea Philippi, which is, which is way up north. It, it, is, it is right next to the pagan lands. It's, it's actually, I don't know if you remember it, Emily, but it's actually up where uh, it's near the city of Dan. It's actually where they used to sacrifice, the pagans would sacrifice children to Pan, the god Pan, in that area. It's a really pretty area. It's 1,700 feet high. Um, there's, there's some street brooks of water that come out. So it's a very, very secluded place and a place that Jesus could go to get away almost out of Israel to spend some time with the twelve before they start heading towards Jerusalem. So that's where they are and he is praying alone but clearly in the presence of the twelve. As we see, the disciples were with him praying alone so he was praying with them near him. Um. I think we've talked about this before, but something to remember. We see, we see Jesus praying alone seven times in, in Luke's gospel. Praying alone, praying. Inter- and what did he pray about? John 17 tells him what he prayed. He prayed about, prayed about these 12 apostles. He prayed, well, 11 of the 12. He prays for us. But at that time, he would be praying for them, that they be kept. We see that prayer in John 17. He prayed for wisdom from God to choose the, the, the apostles earlier. So he spent time in prayer alone. And, you know, we, we do pray corporately. And, and um, what we see here is we see Jesus actually praying in a group to himself or with, with God. Praying, communing with God for each of us is a very important thing that we ought be doing. Our prayers ought not simply be when we pray corporately in this body or corporately in your homes. Even if you're sitting in a room with other people, you can be praying. And Jesus models that for us. So, now it happened that he was, as he as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Crowds, the aklas. That word means a crowd or a multitude. It means the common people as opposed to the rulers and leading men. So who do all of these people all over Galilee that have, have, have heard my preaching, Jesus is saying, and, and watched my miracles and then have heard your preaching and watched your miracles, who do all these common folk, not the Pharisees, who do the common folk, who do all these people, who do they say that I am? And they answered, 
John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So many of them said John the Baptist. The, 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 the multitudes of the common people, they say John the Baptist, or they say Elijah, or one of the other Old Testament prophets. All three of these answers have something in common. And, and by the way, this answer, these answers, this answer that's given by the masses is partially correct. It's, it's somewhat accurate. John the Baptist, the first thing. Remember, this is who Herod Antipas thought Jesus was. Matthew 14, 1, at the time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracle, miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod Antipas thought that John the Baptist, who was beheaded, had risen from the dead and was now out doing these things. And so many of the masses thought that. That's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others said, because by the way, what was he doing? He had the same message of sin and repentance and entry into the kingdom of God through forgiveness of sins, not through religion. And so this message was similar in the and now it was like John the Baptist had risen and now had these special powers and was doing these miracles, but it was the same tired message as far as they would be concerned. Others said Elijah. Now this was the, this was the prophet the Jews were expecting to come before the Messiah, right? Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So many, many thought Jesus was Elijah. They thought he had had come to herald the Messiah who would be coming. They they were recognizing Jesus as something quite special in both cases. But they were recognizing him as being this really important prophet that was going to herald the Messiah. They also were recognizing he would have had to be somebody who came back from heaven, back from the dead. And then others said, the prophets of old. Now we all know about Malachi to Matthew was 400 some years. There were writings that took place then, history books. Some of it's called the Apocrypha, which the Catholic Bible would include. It's not, it's not, um, it wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's simply history books. But one of the things that you find in the Apocrypha is, Apocrypha is that the Jews were looking for Jeremiah to return because when Jeremiah would return, he, he had taken with him the Ark of the Covenant and the Altar of Incense. And the Jeremiah was going to return and bring back the Altar of Incense and the Ark of the Covenant. So they thought, if we look in Matthew's Gospel, I believe it is maybe Mark's, they say specifically Jeremiah. Or one of the other prophets. Now, if it was Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, what would have had to have happened is, again, they would have to have come back from the dead. So they're recognizing Jesus as a prophet. They're recognizing him as a prophet sent by God. That's partially accurate. It's part of who he is. But he certainly isn't Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the Old Testament prophets. But they have a partially correct answer, an almost correct answer. And and, and I think why this matters is that I think we have a fairly healthy understanding of these things, but I'm not sure the world does, and I want us to be, be equipped 
Did Jehovah's Witnesses actually have a partially right answer? They have partially right answers. They, they think of Jesus as a prophet. Now, they think of Jesus as the reincarnation of Michael the Archangel. But don't ever believe that these close enough answers will get you a passing mark. It's a failing mark. They don't believe that Jesus was physically resurrected. I believe he was spiritually resurrected, but not physically resurrected. Their Bible's not the same as our Bible. Their, their, their religion's not the same as our religion. Mormons. There are many, again, I think we understand these things well, but when you talk to a Mormon, some of the nicest people you'll, I mean, really, a, a, good, a good Mormon is some of the nicest folks you'll talk to. They are, they are, they are works based and they do it well. I have a, one of the guys I have breakfast with that I went to high school with, Sacco. You know, he's he's a Mormon. He's he's the nicest one of the bunch and always has been. He's he's been the most moral and had his problems, but he just he's just a nice man. And he claims the name of Jesus Christ. And he would he would try to say that we serve the same God. We don't. <laughs> they think Jesus is the the firstborn spirit child of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. They think that Jesus then became a God and that we can become gods. They don't have the right understanding of who Jesus is. have almost a, have kind of a right answer. They, they would say they use this book along with the Book of Mormon, but it's not the right answer. It's partially correct, but we have to help them understand when you ask them who Jesus is, you must listen for their answer because you will see that they have it partially correct but they're going to fail when they stand before God. Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics have a lot more of the answer correct. They'll even go with the triune God. They'll even go with Jesus being the Son of God and God. But they also believe Jesus isn't enough. It isn't just Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ plus some stuff. So when, when you're asked who, when you ask a Roman Catholic, who is Jesus, and, and their answer falls short of my only hope for salvation, they have the wrong Jesus. The answer is not correct. Prosperity gospel. Boy, they'll go to Kenya with us. The unbelieving prosperity preachers over there, they will tell you all the things about who Jesus is. And yet, they'll say he's part of the triune God. They'll say he died for sins. They'll say, they'll say he's the only way to heaven. And then they will say, but this Jesus came to give us a bunch of cool stuff. That's what he came for. He came to make sure we prospered now. That's what he really came for. In addition to, but that, that he came for, which we know not to be true. They have the wrong answer. It's close. But if we really want to get to the bottom of it with people we talk to, and we want to ask them, who do you say that Jesus is? We have to listen. Especially when we know them to be of other religions. But even if they call themselves Christians, 
We had two guests came in this morning. Don't know anything about them. I know that per usual, 30 minutes of prayer is too long and they're gone. Didn't get the chance to ask them who Jesus is. I was hoping they would hear that this morning. If I ever see them again, I hope to be able to ask them that. So, who do the masses say that I am? Who do the masses say Jesus is now? In this particular land mass, it's changing, but most of them are going to have some answer that's partially correct. Most of the religious folks, that's changing rapidly. So, who do you say that Jesus is? That's the question he now is going to ask them. He starts out by asking them, who do the masses say that I am? And then asking them, then who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer, on behalf of all twelve, then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter's answer is spot on. The Christ of God. Christos. The Greek word for Mashiach. The Messiah. One who has been anointed. Messiah. A title for the anointed one. Peter says, you, Jesus, you are the anointed one. The sent one. You are the anointed one of God. The anointed one of God in the Old Testament. The Messiah that, that is being told to be looked for is, is anointed in three ways. He's anointed as a prophet, the prophet. Psalm 105.15 saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Anointed ones were prophets. And Deuteronomy 18, when it talks about a prophet would come like Moses. Jesus is that anointed prophet of God. He is the final revelation of the word of God. He is the prophet that gives us all truth. He is the end of all prophecy. God has spoken and he is the anointed one, not an anointed one. He's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist. He's not one. He is the prophet. He is the one that's going to pronounce, prophesy, pronounce the end to all sin. He is going to prophesy or pronounce the, the kingdom of God in its entirety. So, so when he says the Christ of God, he's saying you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. You are the anointed promised prophet. The prophet. The prophet of all prophets. This Messiah, this anointed one is also going to be a priest, Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the forever priest. He is the priest who will in time, has now, but in time when he's talking to the twelve, when they say this, he is the priest who will make the once for all sacrifice for sin. The lamb, the blood of the lamb will atone for the sins of his people once for all. There are no more priests 
Now, we are a priesthood, but there's no one functioning in the office of priest any longer. It gets confusing because we talk about priesting our homes, and that just means going before God on the behalf of your people. But the actual office of priest, he is the priest. He makes the once-for-all sacrifice. No longer the priest bringing in animals day after day and year after year to sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people until the next time. The once-for-all sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He is the final priest, the forever priest. He is the final mediator between God and His people. This is the anointed one. This is who He is. He's, He's the priest that has now entered into the Holy of Holies and sat down. It's finished. He's the Messiah. He's the one they've been looking for. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the the prophet. You are the priest. You are the king, the forever king. 1 Samuel 2.10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the king. This is the anointed one. This is the king of kings. This is the Mashiach, is the forever king in the line of David. As king, he will not allow sin to reign over God's people any longer. He is our king. Peter's answer, incomplete in some ways because these things haven't happened. But what he understands when he gives this answer, when he's asked, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ of God. In Matthew, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the prophet, the priest, and the king. You are the fulfillment of all of those, those shadows and those types. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Luke's gospel throughout, we've been seeing this testimony. The, the, the angel of the Lord with the shepherds in the, in the, that were tending their flocks in Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, born in Bethlehem just like David was. Whose, whose lineage he would come from, the forever king. The angel had said to the shepherds, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. People, Jewish people were looking for this. When John the Baptist in Luke 3, as the people were in expectation, all were questioning their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. They were looking for this anointed one. Luke 4.41, the demons, they know he is the Christ. And the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and not allowed them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. They knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was the son of God. They knew he was the, the fulfillment, he knew, they knew he was the way to right standing with God. The Messiah, the one who would bring God's people back to him. Now finally, we see the twelve understand this. We see this questions asked of the twelve. They actually verbalize. Matthew 16, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how did he know this answer? 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Because of the grace of God, Peter, on behalf of the apostles, knew who Jesus was. And the answer when they were asked was the correct answer. You are the Christ of God. You are the Son of living God. This is something... What you can, one of the things to dwell on, brothers and sisters, is you have the right answer. And you were given that right answer supernaturally as a gift from God. That you would not boast. That your right answer is something, not something you did or you came to. And that as you would ask people and show people who Jesus is when you talk with them, you would understand that God has to move in order to give them the right answer. Because without the work of God, without the gospel and then the work of the Spirit, no one would have the right answer. And there are people in this room today who would call themselves Christians who don't have the right answer because it's never been given them. They've got a lot of the right answers. They're pretty close. There's many people in our lives that you know that call themselves Christians. Their answer is going to be close. They have close to the right answer. Many of you, I think about Brad and Greta, they had a lifetime of religion. They had many of the right answers. But God then gave them special revelation as he gave them new hearts and they have the complete right answer. These 12, they they finally understood They knew that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the the one that God sent who would free his people from bondage. Now, they're still hung up on what that meant. They know it's the Messiah, but they, they still don't have a full picture of this as an eternal kingdom, not a temporal kingdom. And you'll see that on and off. And until 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 the the Spirit of God comes upon them, they have lots of unbelief and continue to struggle with that and after the Holy Spirit indwells them we see something different but they do have the correct answer to the question of who Jesus is the Christ of God the prophet the priest the king the savior of all who would believe into him that's what they know and again it's not complete because Christ has not finished all of his work they'll know more later Now, the difference between them and us is we have the full story, don't we? We know more than they knew. Our answer is even more more complete. So now, the question I asked us at the beginning of today's sermon. Who do you say that Jesus is? Formulate an answer in your mind. Who do you say that Jesus is? Everyone should be thinking. Who is he? This is the question of all questions. This is your final. I'm the professor who's giving you the final answer to the, to the test of all tests. And I'm giving you the question. I'm going to give you the answer. You get the answer every week in your homes and from this pulpit. But who do you say Jesus is? 
Romans 6, 16-18 Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Down to verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at, the time, at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is, it is, is Jesus your master? Are you his slave? Have you been purchased? Do you know that you've been purchased and now you do not own yourself? Pastor Tyler talked about that yesterday in the area of marriage and our bodies. They're not our own. They've been purchased. Do you know him as your master? Is that who Jesus is? Or is he all the things you know him to be but not really my master? At the end of the day, I'll be my own authority. Is he truly your Lord? Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess, and we ought to be rejoicing, brothers and sisters, that these things are true for us if they are true for us. And if they're not true for us, we ought to repent and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is kurios, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've done that, you are saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. When the question gets asked, who do you say that Jesus is? What does your heart say? Not what does your mouth say. Not what does your, your, um, your mental assent say. What does your heart say? Do you sit here today and say, He's not really my Lord. Really. Like push come to shove. Most things okay. There's a couple things ain't changing. Then your heart isn't professing Christ so that your mouth can profess Him. But, but for us, He is our Lord. We recognize, Christians recognize, He is our Lord. He is our ultimate authority. You cannot continue to rebel against the Word of God and claim that He is your Lord. When His commands conflict with our desires, 
He wins. In our hearts and in our actions imperfectly. But it's not about the perfect actions. Is He your Lord? It's not simply enough to say, Lord, is it? Matthew 7 makes it clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen, I'm not wanting the brothers and sisters in here to question whether they know Christ and they have the right answer. But I am wanting us to think, is this true of us? And then I want us to know how to speak to people. How to listen. How to ask them who Jesus is to them. But it starts with asking, actually asking ourselves, who is Jesus to us? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's not a, there, there's, I don't think there's a person in here today, maybe a couple, but I don't think many that are not going to say, Lord, Lord. They will say, Lord, Lord, with their mouths. Now and when they stand before God. Because I think there's mental assent in this room, mostly Jesus is Kurios. He is Lord. But it's not what you actually believe in your heart. Because, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It doesn't matter what your mouth says. It doesn't matter what you have mental assent to. He must be Lord of your life. That, that you will follow His command, not your own desires, and that's actually true of you. That's actually true of what you actually think of Him. And not measured by perfect obedience, because we don't have that, do we? But is that actually who He is, and are we actually moving that direction by faith for real? And I trust that we are until we aren't, and then I hope somebody will grab us when we're not. Members of this church, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Who do you say that Jesus is? He's, is He your Master and your Lord? Is He the only way to the Father for you? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you say Jesus is your only hope to have right standing before God in heaven? Again, not, yep, I'll pass the test on the exam because I mentally ascended that. No, actually, do you live your life clinging to Christ as your only hope for glory? I don't think we have many people in this room that are members that, that cling to their works. We all tend towards that or can, but you know so many people in your lives who call Jesus Lord, they say they're Christians, and all they're clinging to is their works. That's the way to heaven. That's not who Jesus is. Wrong answer. Fail. 
Jesus is my only hope. I have no, I have no, preaching this sermon well is no hope for me. Rightly talking about marriage yesterday in this conference, that's not where my hope lies. I assure you it's not perfect. Christ is my only hope. That's who Jesus is to me. Is that who He is to you? Is that part of your answer that you came up with in your head? Again, you don't have to have this perfect answer complete. I just want to know what's real. I want you to think about what's true for you. And there's no salvation in anyone else. There's no other name under heaven given among men what by which we must be saved. Who do you say Jesus is? Is He your only hope? Is He the trust that you cling to? Or do you hope in your faith? Do you actually hope in your hope? Or do you hope in Jesus Christ? Do you hope in your parents? Or do you hope in Jesus Christ? Children? So many people I think Scripture would bear out with the parable of the soils and just the reality of, of, of the narrowness of the way. So many people have an answer to who Jesus is that's partially accurate at differing levels. But at the end of the day, He's not their Lord. They're not His slave. He's not the only way. He's not even God. Who do you believe Christ to be? What is it you will say about him that's actually true for you? Did Jesus actually die for your sins? Past, present, and future? Did Jesus actually die that you could remain in your sins willingly? He didn't, did he? He didn't die that I could carry on being an adulterer and a drunk and a liar. He didn't. That's not who he is. But you know what? He is the one who died that even when I sin, I am safe in him. May Ginomai. Let sin abound that grace could abound all the more. No, no. Never. Certainly not. The number of people I've sat with through the years and had relationship with through the years that, that continue in their sin, their willful known sin that goes against the Word of God and will not hear to repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone is long. A very long list. Don't be on that list, Mike Reed. Don't be on that list, brothers and sisters, of the ones who will confess Christ with your mouth and then presume upon His goodness to stay in your sin willfully, wantonly, and repeatedly. 
And I'm talking about the sins of the digits like Romans talks about. I'm not talking about, look, anger. Who, who does not ever get angry? No one. But if you actually believe in your heart, well, I get angry and I'm going to get angry tomorrow. I'm going to get angry the next day. And I was right for getting angry yesterday. And my anger is covered and I'm okay in it because Christ died for me. You're wrong. It's not who Jesus is. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Really? Who is he? Closing thought, the most important question that every human being must answer is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Your heart's answer. The reason I put that there is it's not simply your mouth's answer. It's your heart's answer to this question will determine where you will spend eternity. Your heart's answer to this question will determine where you spend eternity. Listen, this is as real as I can possibly... It's as real as this. It's more real. It's the most real thing I can tell you. You and I will spend eternity either in glory or in destruction. In heaven or in hell. And the the entry point is who is Jesus? Or the exit point. If you have that answer wrong in your heart, I'm not even saying you can pass a theological exam. I'm saying, actually, who is He? Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? Is He your Master? Is He the only way? Is He God? Did He live as a man? Did He die as a sinner? Did He raise again? Did he ascend to the right hand of God? He died as one who sinned and he never sinned. He rose, he lives. He's at the right hand of God. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is for everybody, me included, not just the unbelievers. This is for all of us. Here's my question to you. Will you answer that question today with the correct answer? That he is the anointed one sent by God to be the prophet, priest, and king who saves his people from God's wrath and brings them into his kingdom. And all that those words entail, will you answer correctly today? Because you might not have tomorrow. Your eternal life depends on it. There are some in here today, from my perspective, the only thing, the only thing that keeps you from believing into Jesus is you don't think you're bad enough. You don't think you need Him. Who doesn't need Jesus?
There is no one who doesn't need Jesus. I don't need another priest. I don't need more prophets. I don't need any other king. I don't need any other savior. I don't need any other Lord. He is all of those things. Will you answer correctly? He is the Christ of God. He is the Son of God. He is propitiation for my sins. He is my Lord. He is my Master. He is my only hope. Father, thank you again for your word. I thank you for this question that you've had us to ponder today. I'm thankful that you have given the correct answer by your grace as you did to Peter that day. You have given the believers in this room by your grace a knowledge of who Christ is. May we continue to grow in that knowledge and grow in the grace that's provided us through that relationship we have with you. Father, may we be people who actually are able to talk with others about who they say Jesus is and help them to see Christ for who he is, that they too may be saved for your glory, for Christ's sake. Amen. Hymn 148, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. Hymn 148. I'm sorry, 146. How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. 146.